welcome to another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm good. I'm a little thrown off on the, the new introduction there. You kind of stomped me for a second, but uh There's a reason behind it. Oh, is it? No, there okay. is. What, what's the reason? It's because of our special guest today. Yes, we do have a very special guest today. I have actually with me in the flesh in front of me right here, we have uh, an extraordinary musician and I would say probably an even better human being. We have Robert Anthony Navarro with us here today. So welcome, Robert. Thanks, guys. How goes it? <laughs> you sound was, so enthused. <laughs> I was uh, not sure. I thought someone was going to jump out from behind you when I heard the news music. <laughs> but thanks for being here, Robert. We wanted to have you on here and pick your brain a little bit. So uh, maybe we'll start off just the way we usually start off, and you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Okay, so I am a music director at APM Music. For those of you that don't know who APM is, if you're in our industry, I would be very surprised. APM is the largest and probably most well-known music library in the U.S. and Canada. And I'm a music director. I also run the custom department and I head up the tech side with metadata and taxonomy. I've been a professional producer, composer, songwriter for over, I don't know at this point, you know, 20 years or so. Oh, it's longer and than that, dude. <laughs> I sort of, uh, I don't know. It's been a while. That's kind of a little bit about me. Awesome. So <laughs> when you say, if somebody doesn't really know, when we're talking about production music, what are we really talking about here? And how is that different from sort of traditional songwriting, would you say? Any music that you're hearing out there in media today is production music. A lot of people ask me this question when I do panels and such, you know, well, where would I be hearing the production music? And it's pretty much everywhere, you know, you're hearing production music every day and you're not even aware of it. It can be sitting in a movie theater waiting for the movie to start back before the world broke. And you know, we used to do that. Remember movie theaters? <laughs> Yay! Um, we'll get back um, to theaters someday. <clears throat> Yeah. Could be, you know, being on an airplane, you could be getting a job training video happen and you have the music playing. It could be a full-blown motion picture, video game, you name it, everywhere and every music is there. If you have a movie, let's say, and there's music playing, you're pretty much looking at source music that would happen. You know, if uh, somebody walks into a bar and you hear, you know, there's a jukebox in the corner and you hear music coming out of it, it could be muse track or something you know it could be source music a license from a commercial artist could be some incidental music that some composer wrote that they were commissioned to write for the movie or it could be apm music could be supplying the music for that particular usage it just permeates every kind of facet of our industry yeah there's a lot of outlets like you're describing there where there is a need for music that i think a good portion of people don't necessarily think about. We tend to think about when somebody says, I'm a musician, the first go-to tends to be, you're in a band and you're doing something. But there is this entire other part of the industry that supplies just the kind of stuff that you're describing. And I think that seems to be, at least in my view, like an ever-growing thing. Would, would you agree with that, that there's 
more opportunities for composers these days, or is it just that the competition is so fierce that it's, I almost want to say, like eating itself? Do you have an opinion on that? Well, let's go back in time for a minute. Um, I don't know if Jody has the, the back in time music to cue. Yeah. I like it. I started in production music in 2001. At that time, you know, I kind of look at the golden age of library, let's say, somewhere between, I don't know, 2001 to 2006, let's say somewhere in there. It was still a relatively unknown thing. You know, a lot of composers, people I went to school with, people that I looked up to and became friends with down the road, you know, in the music scene, they didn't even know what production music was. Right. You know, I'm one I of myself, those people. Yeah. You know, I myself didn't know what production music was. And I always am quick to say that, you know, I owe my uh, a good portion of my career to my friend who went to music school with me, Jerry Howe, went to MI with me. And he was working at APM as this kind of, I would say, like an IT slash accounting position. And he just mentioned in passing that they were looking for a music director and he thought I would be good at it. And the rest is history. That was a, a key pivotal moment in my career was, uh, you know, knowing Jerry and you know, ending up at APM. So what you're but, saying is going to music school is actually a really good idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for for it's funny. I mean, sometimes when I'm talking to colleges, you know, or panels and things, you know, a lot of kids say, "Well, wait, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to necessarily be in an orchestra. You know, what else could I do with my career?" And you know, that's yeah. when I go into my spiel: production music and publishing. There's a lot of opportunities there. That kind of opened up a lot of doors for me. And before that, it was just amazing. No one knew what production music was. And now I make a joke: you're in a bar or at some gathering, and I guarantee you someone has a library. You know, someone in the room, it, it could be some library you never heard of and never will hear of, or it could be that they write for some big library, but now everybody knows what library is and they all want to get in. Yeah. And it's interesting because there are some composers that have kind of been grandfathered in, and they have these relationships that they built, so they've been able to get projects after projects. But the vast majority of composers... If they're lucky enough to get an album, they want a follow-up, and it's not always easy because you know, every library has their own release schedule, and they only have so many slots per year that they're able to give a composer. Right. You mentioned a couple of things that I kind of wanted to touch on that I think is important. We should do like a little bit more time machine reversal here and, sure. and go back to his earlier days before he became this production music magnate. <laughs> okay because you and i attended mi at the same time that's how we met yes and between that point in time and the point in time where jerry who also attended mi at the same time we were there which is how you knew him you had a little bit of a career going with a band and other things like you appeared on a rather large show that was sort of like the precursor to american idol if i'm not mistaken I did. All right. So in another incarnation, I fronted a punk band that was called Trip. It was a pop punk band, and we were right as pop punk started to die. That's when we oh, <laughs> came perfect. onto the scene. <laughs> you know, a lot like of people said, timing. "Yeah, if only you had been there." You know, five years before or something, right. whatever. But you know, we had Win Davis, who's a well-known engineer and producer of Total Access Recording in Redondo Beach. 
I guess I, I got to know Wynn because he was friends with my cousin, and my cousin's a musician, Tom Foley. And Wynn ended up recording my band before we were ever trip. We were in this band called the Billy Mummies. It was a kind of like a, a funny uh, Billy Mummy, the child actor that was in Lost in Space and the Twilight Zone. And oh, uh, we, but our band was called the Billy Mummies. It was kind of like a play on words. And for a second um, there, I thought it was going to be like hillbilly mixed with <laughs> the, the monsters or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just it was kind of like a wacky kind of Weezerish kind of thing, and you know we went through a series of different names and ended up eventually uh, we went in to record with Win, and then it led to another recording, and he gave us a development deal. We were doing a lot of different things, and we got asked to play on the last incarnation of Star Search, which was called Ed McMahon's Next Big Star. We went to Las Vegas, and it was like the whole thing, doing it at the MGM Grand. It was a lot of fun. Put out an album and played the local circuit, and it was a lot of fun. Cool. That was back then. But what's interesting, and going back for a second to what you're talking about, school and MI, I've had this thing happen It's my whole life. I've wanted to write a book. I mean, one day I'm going to sit down and do this, but I've had something happen that was pretty amazing and it's gotten me through my entire life and I hope it continues. But basically key people have appeared in my life at exactly the right time and it has changed everything I'm doing. There's this Hindu concept. Back in college, I minored in Eastern thought and philosophy and things and religion I remember this this Hindu thing where if you are lucky enough to meet some key figure that has imparted some something upon your life and changed you, then you are then obliged to go out and change 10 people's lives. And those mm. 10 people are supposed to change 10 people's lives and so on and so on and so on. Oh, the pay it forward you know, thing with yeah. about three times more people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but so one super key figure in my life was somebody that started out as my guitar teacher and then ended up being a sort of you know my friend and Ross Bruce Boulier uh, Bruce Boulier oh, oh yeah uh, uh, Racer X and mm-hmm. the scream and epidemic he was my teacher at the time that when I was about to enter MI he just gave me some of the best advice that anyone could have given me going in and he said look you're not going to be the fastest gun there's going to be guys at school that that's all they concentrate on is being the fastest machine there you know you yeah. You um, don't even try. Um, you know th- these guys come out of Sweden and Japan, and they're gonna they're gonna smoke you. You know, like the they're, guy they're in just... front of you right now. Yeah, no. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, but but he said, don't even try. You know, don't make that your goal. Learn how to write a song. It'll yeah. get you way farther. Spend time in the ear training in the uh, the computer lab. That was really valuable because. I did that. You know, I really honed my songwriting skills and my composition, and it served me very, very well. Yeah. How old were you when when you got that piece of advice, roughly? So I'm guessing early 20s here? I was uh, 19. Okay. Yeah, so you're you're primed, and it's a good time to hear that because... uh, Provided you want to hear it, that's the real thing. Yeah, you have to be open, but uh, just like Robert said here, like when you meet key people at the right time, when you're willing to take that advice... It's really important. There are a couple of things that I would like to to go back to now. Did we go back far enough there, Jody? Can I take I, another? Well, you can take it as far. You know what? Go back to the <laughs> point he came out of the womb. I have no idea. 
I have very little, shockingly little interest of that, actually. <laughs> but, but you mentioned a couple of things there, Robert, and you actually said them a few times where you realized that the meeting people and the thing that I think gets lost sometimes, and, and I was super guilty of this when I went to MI, but you mentioned not necessarily the what you learned, the technical expertise, so, so to speak, that you might have learned in school, but the networking and getting to know people and how that can pay off down the road. That's a really, really important thing to do. And some people struggle with that. I find myself, I think I'm horrible at that. <laughs> That's my cross to bear. But now everybody feels sorry for me. <laughs> and it is a no, very but, big cross. Oh, it, it's horrible. <laughs> but just the idea there of getting to know people and being willing to work with people and, and sort of feed off what other people need and be able to provide something for them and, and doing that networking thing in return, I think it's really important to kind of take away that it's easy to get into a mindset, I think, of I have to do everything by myself. You know, no man is an island, as the saying goes, right? Sure. So you learn from people that you meet along the way. And just like you said, it, you have to be willing to try out what they might try to mm -hmm. show you. But anyway, I just wanted to touch on that, Robert, because you said that, you know, people come along at the same time and you, you meet people. So don't be a jerk and be cool when you're working with people. <laughs> Good advice. That, that came yeah, from that, Chris, though. Let's get it from Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, there is a, a spectrum, let's say, and there's always going to be somebody better than you and somebody worse than you, yeah. you know, just no matter who you are. And I think that... There's plenty of people that I've admired over the years and doesn't have to be a well-known celebrity. It could be somebody you've never even, didn't even know who these people are. You just happen to see them playing in some coffee house. And I've always said like, wow, that guy, he can be the biggest dick in the world because wow, look what he can do. He has every right to just uh, <laughs> not even uh, speak to you, just to sit in his ivory tower and just say, behold, <laughs> you know. This are you going to drop any names of like who these people are? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but, 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 I'm, but I'm just saying, I mean, there's certain people, like, like I'll give you an example. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Phil X, who's uh, the new guitarist of Bon Jovi, yeah. you know, probably one of the best guitar players I've ever had the pleasure of listening to, watching, experiencing, you know, the, the whole, the whole Plus gamut. he's a masterful comedian. Yeah, but but the funny thing is, I, I've said many times, you know, I actually told Phil, I said, man, you have every right to be the biggest dick that ever walked through the planet Earth, and you're not, and that's why you're cool. I mean, you're yeah. so, he's a very, I mean, yes, he's super presence, you know, d definitely causes a reaction, you know, Phil is not a quiet guy, you know. Yeah, um, <laughs> by any stretch of um, the imagination. You know, but the point is that who he is as a person comes out, and he's a real down-to-earth guy that is cool and cares about people and takes the time to ask, how's your family doing? You know, what's going on with your kids? You know, we got to get our kids together and do something and play and whatever. And then turns around and just shreds like you'll never shred in your life and, and makes it look way too easy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, kind of like the guy with <laughs> the glasses in, in Indiana Jones when his face melts and they open the, the arc. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but I mean, it's like, there are people that are very good that have every right to be a jerk and they're not, you know, and, you know, but there's plenty of people that have no right to be a jerk and man, do they have a chip, you know, and, yeah. and whatever this is. And what's really funny is in my line of work, you know, I'm always trying to find new people to work with. I really thrive on that. 
And I've had this happen so many times that it's just comedic at this point where I meet somebody, generally they're older than I am and, you know, maybe more experienced and have had a longer career. And I'll be working with them. And there's this moment where I guess they have to, like everyone wants to unzip their fly and they look, look, look how, big, <laughs> you know, how great I am, you know, look how awesome I am. Yeah, you know, and, and then there's this moment where you have to critique from time to time and talk about what you're not getting that you need. And instead of being, you know, humble and yeah, sure, what, what do you need? Let me, let me make this happen. There's this, like, for instance, you'll hear young man. And by the way, young man is never followed by you're absolutely right. It's always a young man, you know, when you're in this industry, as long <laughs> as I have, um, you'll, uh, you know, you come to certain things in life and uh, blah, 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 blah. And it's just a bunch of, <laughs> BS and whatever. And just, you know, so whether it's a person who has a giant ego that he'll never be able to um, contend with his own ego, you know, or, yeah. or whatever his story is, I just think that there's no place for any of that in what we do. You know, we're all learning. I think the minute we stop learning, we're dead. You, you have to be like a shark that's constantly moving. You're always looking for the next thing, you know, the next gig, the next piece of information. And I just think that yeah, you should always be cool. I mean, it'd be nice. It's a sage advice right there. Yes, it's a feeding frenzy all the time. Yeah. yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. Let's maybe go into a little bit more of the, the technical aspects here or, or the writing. How do you feel? Obviously, you've been on, on both sides of the fence here from more or less like traditional band setting without that type of a songwriting and writing for production music. How do you experience the differences there of how the sort of like the process? Because instead of perhaps working with, oh, we got to have a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus type of that kind of thing. When, when it comes to production music, it is a completely different set of rules. How would you describe that? All right. So way back in the day guys would get into a room and record and they had to really learn and woodshed their song, make sure that they had it down and they pressed record and they hoped to God they didn't blow anything or make a boo-boo because you can only punch in so many times and blah, 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 blah. You know, right. nowadays it's very different. And I find that some people who will remain nameless, you know, are very lazy. I don't know if it's a question of just being lazy or they just don't have the experience, but They'll play a verse, a guitar part for a verse, and they'll just copy and paste it. I've watched them copy paste into yeah. the next thing. And I'm like, why don't you just play the second right. time? You know, what do you need to? What do you need to? Well, because it's faster. It's faster. I want to move forward, get to the next song. For what? Is uh, Steven Spielberg is you know waiting for your track? You know, <laughs> and, you know what? What is what is the the urgency and what do you have to be so fast? So are you um, talking that it's not good to necessarily have quantity over quality? Absolutely. I think that you should care about, you know, everything you do. You know, I, I know a lot of people that don't worry about things. There's a big no-no in my industry that's retitling, you know, the mm -hmm. whole, yeah. you know, retitling thing and, you know, sticking your tracks in a million different libraries. And, you know, a lot of times people do it for a few reasons. One, they think that they're spreading it around. They can have more options to, or more opportunities to get their music somewhere or, they um, figure, you know, I don't even spend that much time on this. You know, I could just spend the minimum and just get it out there and whatever it is. But I one time had some people that I know that I was working with tell me, there's nothing wrong with retitling. That's just all 
a bunch of crap. Retitling is great. My music is like fertilizer. I spread it everywhere. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I just stopped and I said, wow. <laughs> okay. So there's another word for fertilizer and it's called yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, the just... funny thing is you're mentioning this. The first time that it gave me a strong sense of don't do that was listening to Allison Schneider, who heads up NBC and their music department over there. And she flat out said, if we get a track that comes from multiple sources, it will not get used. You hear that from essentially the word of God when it comes to the music department of NBC. I would hope you'd take it to heart. I know I did. Up to that point, I'd only had one or two tracks, I think, that I had done that were in various libraries, but due to one particular co-writer that kept putting them everywhere. And it was learning that not only through Robert, but also through hearing it at these things and saying, don't do that. I was like, I'm not going to do that ever again. You'd learn from those lessons, I suppose. But Well, yeah. you would hope. And that's one thing I just want to kind of reiterate for people listening to the podcast is that Robert is one of those guys that it's like when he hands down wisdom, you should listen because he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> well, look, the thing is this. Jody will tell you I am very anal when it comes to production. You make you know, me I, look like a sloppy mess by comparison, and I'm pretty <laughs> fucking anal. <laughs> well, it's just I used to be worse when I had the pleasure of working with Ken Scott, uh, Beatles engineer, and he made me think about a few things. And he, I was trained a certain way where when the song came to an end and you you know hit that last chord and you let it ring out you hold your breath for dear life and you hope you don't make any sound and you don't move and you don't want to have any fingernails squeak on the thing or any kind of don't you fart. know yeah anything yeah. you know you, you hear these classical recordings and you hear guys there's always like the guy in the background <coughs> you know like a weird cough and putting down sticks and doing things and I was not that I was dead silent like I was dead and I remember Ken saying you can move. You know, you're, you know, you're 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 a human being. You're allowed to breathe. You know, and he said something to me that really made me stop and think. And I sort of changed my whole perspective. I was helping assist him during a recording, and he said, "One thing that I don't like about production music is that they suck the life out of the human factor. It's those key things, the happy accidents. You know, a fingernail in the right place on a on a guitar, something." that you hear in the track, it's real. A real human being played that. It wasn't AI. You it know, depends and, on whether or not they copied and pasted it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you hear those things. Makes you kind of sort of twisted my head around. You know, I, I was like, hmm, good point. And I adopted that. But I just think that, I don't know, it's, it's just a funny thing. There are, well, Jody will tell you, I can't help it. You know, the more comfortable I get, get a scotch in me or I just have to be in the right <laughs> mood. I can be very sarcastic. You know, it's just my, my sense of humor. And my cousin Tom was, he's like a big brother to me growing up around him. And, you know, my family are some pretty funny people in my family. And I remember I was once listening to this classical station was on and my cousin's a big classical fan. And at the end of the piece, we were just listening to some, something in the background. I've does, I have no idea what we were listening to at the time, but the very highbrow announcer said something like, yes, that was so-and-so, composer of 
blah, blah, blah music. And in his lifetime, he composed 10 pieces of music that did whatever. And my cousin said, what? 10 pieces of music? I composed 10 pieces of music on the toilet. What are you talking about? 10 pieces of music? You know, what? And, and it was funny. And I thought about it. And the people that I think are really precious about their stuff, they're afraid to take a chance. I don't want to put it into a library. I'm waiting for George Lucas is going to call. I know it, you know, and he's going to want that. And I'm going to, it's going to be locked up forever. And I just think about it and I say, well, aren't you going to write more? You know, take a chance, put it in there, see what happens. If it does nothing, write another piece of music, you know. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused for a second here. We're, we're going into the whole concept of how dry, like a martini, that your humor is into you need to be less precious with what you write. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's just just in terms of I think that if you're not prolific, this is probably not the right business for you. Library a, music, you know? you're saying. Yeah, because there's always going to be another track somewhere in you, hopefully. To be a successful library composer, I think you need to – it has to come naturally. You know, you have to be able to just crank it out. But at the same time, it can't mean nothing to you. You should pour your heart into every track you do and because you're putting your name out there in the world. Uh, you don't want to have tracks floating around that you never really cared about because they will pop up when you don't want them to. <laughs> you know? um, and it's like, ooh, that wasn't good kind of thing. So I mean, what I'm, you're saying is there's a fine line between the I shit 10 songs on the toilet and... The guy only created 10 songs in his lifetime, somewhere yes. in between there. Absolutely. I sometimes, uh, you know, I have friends who it's almost like it's a race to try to see how much content they could put out in the world. And, you know, I'll be working with people and a couple of people will say, oh, yes, I do a track of music a day. That's my speed. I've heard and that. I'm, yeah. And I think to myself and I go, okay, but why? Do you have a medal for doing that? Is it, why do you have to do a track of music a day? Well, because I'm, I'm on a pace. I'm trying to, you're trying to do what? When you die, you want someone to say, and this guy put out four trillion songs in his life. I right. mean, for me, it comes as fast as it has to come. I've had times when I've, you know, you're so focused on what you're doing. You look up and you never had dinner. Mm -hmm. And all this time went by and you go, wow, I just, I spent the whole day doing whatever I was doing. And then there's other times that, you put down an idea and it, you don't even pick it up again for a couple of days. It's whatever the pace that it takes. But I just, I don't think you need to be in any big hurry to finish whatever you're doing. I think that, you know, I know other people who, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I work well under pressure when you have that added sort of pressing that, okay, I don't have all the time in the world. I have to really make this happen. Sure, it kind of jump starts the creative process, but I have friends. I can that attest I, to that, by the way. Yeah. The way you pulled me into the whole production world was a late night phone call. Roughly at like, I don't know, 1145, you're like, hey, what are you doing? I'm driving home. I need help with something. <laughs> and it was the Butterfinger commercial that we did. There you go. And we got it done. I think we finally sent it off at what, 6 a.m. in the morning? So we were up all night. Yep. Yeah. That was under deadline pressure right there. That was interesting. I, I think that's... A very personal thing as well. I think dealing with the deadline for some people can be murder. Can't do it. And it just, this stress gets to them immensely. But I think it can also be a sort of light going off. It's like, okay, you need to focus now. It's like, th this is, now it's time to do your job. The red right? light's and, on. Right. So it's, 
you know, when you're doing something, like Robert said, you don't have to race to finish a track. But if you give yourself, even if you have an actual deadline or a self-imposed deadline, it can sometimes mess with your head in the sense of, look, I got to do my work and I'm not, oh, you know, I, I'm not really feeling it this day. I'm, I'm going to go for lunch instead. And, and you're just putting it off. I think it can help you with the discipline of sitting down and actually just doing your job. Yeah. Right. To me, it, it, I... I like that as well. I've had a tendency to possibly get overwhelmed in the past, but ever since, ironically, becoming a parent, I've managed my time a little bit better. And I think Robert will attest to that as well. It's interesting. Some people, I think, work well at a rapid pace of doing it, and sometimes not so much. And I think having that wherewithal where you can be honest with yourself if what it is that you're writing is garbage uh, and you just go, okay, well, yeah, this is not working out. Maybe I'm trying too much here and you step away from a bit and try again later on or the next day, that type of thing. For sure. But another aspect, I hire a lot of people all the time to do a variety of things. You know, part of my role at APM is I have the custom division. And from time to time, we have these bespoke custom creation, you know, for clients and such. And I know a couple of people that for whatever reason, they wait to the absolute last minute to do what it's going on. And it just drives me crazy yeah. because in, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, you always do amazing work, but would it have been better if you took your time? If you yeah, know, you, you never know, I guess. <clears throat> you right? yeah. wait to the last possible second to crank this stuff out. You know, I don't know, may maybe not. Maybe they would be terrible and they, maybe. and they need that pressure. But you know, I always wonder, why do you wait to the last minute? Well, another aspect I think is is integrity. Whatever the integrity is, is, is it integrity of how long it takes you to do something, whatever your discipline is, but something that people will come to me all the time and ask, hey, I'm a composer, you know, are you looking for anybody else to work with, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm always curious, what do they do? And the people that are the jack of all trade, I do it all, you know, those... Not as interesting to me. Yeah. yeah you've you said know. that to me before. Oh, I think that's interesting. I feel so deflated now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you should, Jody. You should. <laughs> well, I, I mean, should. Con contrary to popular belief, nobody is good at everything. Right. You know, there's, there's no composer I've ever lived that I've ever met that can do it all. Amazing. You know, maybe they have a few categories they can crank stuff out and it's great. But I think that specializing, at least in a few things, is it's the way to go. Yeah. And I think that comes from either, you know, regardless as a band recording artist or if you're dealing with production music, you will eventually, if you're aware enough, you will find your own voice. You will kind of realize that for better or worse, this is what I'm good at and try to emphasize that as opposed to sort of when you pose that question, say, well, what do you do? having that fear like, oh, I'm going to miss an opportunity if I can't do everything. Right? I, I think people would rather hear like, I am pretty good at this. This is what I do here. If you offer your services to do something that you know that you're not necessarily going to deliver to the high degree that is expected, you're sort of burning a bridge there. You're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because it's like, well, now you just kind of wasted a whole week of, of work here for everybody or whatever happened to be. So that just being honest, I think, and say that this is what I do, sure. I think it behooves everybody, I, I would think. Yeah, well, something something occurred to me the other night, and it's so like, time why am I doing this podcast? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get me out of here. Yeah. No, um, no, something um, occurred to me that is so timely with what we're talking about here. 
I think that one thing that composers, at least in my industry, get hung up in is having to do everything themselves. Yeah. As we were talking about earlier, you know, you feel like you have to be the end-all, be-all, just do it all. The jack of I all think trades. That, right. But, but I mean, specifically with what you're doing on a particular track, let's say, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a position where this has benefited me, you know, not having that mindset. For instance, my main instrument is probably guitar and voice, say mm -hmm. th those two. When it comes to guitar, I mean, that's my main actual instrument. And I'm, I'm pretty adept at a lot of different styles, but there are some people that are better than me at certain things that rather than me sitting down and just going crazy trying to get something perfect, I can hire somebody who I know is way better at that and it just comes so natural and they can knock it out, boom, and I move on and finish it up, do the other things that have to happen. Yeah. Instead of spending hours and hours and hours trying to make it the other way. And I have uh, a friend of mine, Ken Belcher, is uh, an amazing guitar player. We call him Motor Man because <laughs> he has this way about him where I'm sure you've heard there's software that will allow you to create these motors that'll go in the background of a track. It's just these very, very sort of repetitive figures, you know, that maybe it's a guitar thing that kind of does its thing in the background and your track is built around it. But to be able to play that precise, it's an art form, yeah. you know, to be just on the click and just so perfect to be able to do. I mean, obviously, you know, he has feel too. He could do whatever he wants to do, but he's so perfect with certain things he does that rather than me sit and toil trying to get something that precise, I'd rather hire Ken and in his sleep, watching television can crank this thing out. And I was working on a track not long ago where I said, hey, can you lay this down for me? And yeah, sure. Boom, done. And then I ended up finishing the track and doing everything else I was going to do. And yeah, I could have played the part. I could have done it just fine, but it would have taken me you know, three times as long to get it as perfect as I wanted it to be because it wasn't exactly the style that I play. Yeah. You know, um, It was a jazz thing. So... The complete extreme in another direction, bad uh, of what I'm talking about that I've actually heard of composers doing. I know a guy who I don't necessarily work with this person, but I, I know him and he records everything himself, every single thing, whether it's drums, guitar, whatever it is, even instruments he doesn't play, he'll do it himself. And I remember once him telling me he recorded the drums, but he can't play drums. So he recorded each individual drum by itself and then put them together as a kit just to be able to say he did the drums. And it's like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, I The amount of time it took him to create one drum track was ridiculous. And I said, that's nice. Uh, I, I call Nate Morton and Nate will crank this out in like three seconds or another person we went to school with, Makoto Izumatani, you know, can do it in his sleep. You go to a, a real drummer, Gary Ferguson, you know, somebody like that, don't feel like you have to do everything yourself, I guess is my point. Yeah. Was he you know? was he actually recording drums for a production track like that? Yes. I'm Ouch. telling you, there was a hi-hat and all he played was the hi-hat. And then there was the kick and then there was a ride symbol. I said, are you kidding? How long does this take you? This is yeah. ridiculous. Four weeks. <laughs> you know? Wow. You know, one other thing, we didn't go into this, but it just happened to pop in my head. By the way, I'm super tangential. So I might be talking and then something in the back of my mind goes, talk about me, talk about me. And if I don't, <laughs> I'll, I'll forget it ever happened. So You can talk it. about you. That's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that I'm thinking about as we're sitting here listening to some of these stories, especially you're talking about these guys that are trying to do everything themselves in that regard, is know your toolbox, right? Like this is guy, it's not necessarily his toolbox to be playing drums. 
Is that what you're referring to? That's, that's what I'm saying. I think that if you're going to be spending unnecessary time just to be able to say you did it, you know, who cares? And another thing is I've had people tell me things where they want to do it all themselves, not just what we're talking about here, but I mean, even to the extent of recording certain things. I know guys who have recorded, I, I think at one point they were talking about recording a drum set and they didn't have a proper studio. They mm -hmm. didn't have treatments. They didn't have all the necessary equipment you might need, something to dial it in properly, but they set up mics and they did it in their living room and they were very proud of their recording. Right. But it didn't sound good enough. You know, yeah. it doesn't sound professional to me. And the response was, yeah, but look, look at what I was able to achieve with what little I have. You know, I mean, I don't have professional gear. I don't have an SSL board and, you know, crazy things. And look what I was able to do. You know, isn't that something? Isn't? And I said, well, but I'll be honest with you, nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares what you did and how amazing that is of what you did. People only know the end result of what you are handing them. And if it doesn't sound amazing, no one cares what you did to make that happen. If uh, you set your guitar up in such a way that you summoned a demon in your living room and you did a jig, you know, and, and it was amazing. No one cares. <laughs> the devil know? came yeah. down to L.A. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stay tuned for part two coming next week.